This episode of The Citadel Cafe is brought to you by listeners like you. Visit patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe to find out how you can become a patron and help make this show possible. This is The Citadel Cafe, episode number 451 for Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. My name is Joel Duggan, and The Citadel Cafe is where my friends and I hang out to talk about the geeky stuff that we are into. Joining me this week, my friend and co-host on the Spawn Chunks podcast, Johnny, you may know him better as Pixel Riffs on social media, YouTube, and Twitch, is here, and we're going to be talking about Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. I am stoked for this. So excited to have you back. Welcome, my friend. Thank you so much. It's a, a good thing to be here talking about some some shows that I actually feel very positive about because yeah, I, I I'm having a a great time with this show. Um, I think I managed to sneak in under the wire of not having been on the Citadel Cafe for a hundred episodes. I think the last time I was on, <laughs> we were talking about this in the pre-show kind of chat was uh, episode three hundred and fifty-four, where it was me and Megan and you got you you were kind of hosting the the discussion but i think we kind of dominated the discussion talking about dungeons and dragons and that was a long time ago now it yeah it really does feel like a long time ago i mean remember the conversation but yeah it does feel like a long time ago and 100 episodes on on the podcast especially like the Citadel cafe that's roughly two years (laughs) because Mm -hmm. because i don't i don't get all 52 weeks in in the course of a year with tcc like i take christmas off and i miss some episodes over the summer usually because it's harder to schedule guests when a lot of the guests now have uh families and you know vacation and summer camp and all that kind of stuff going on yeah yeah but uh yeah i remember that talk and i i remember and recently just started talking with a friend about D. and now that you know COVID restrictions are a lot lighter and you know i'm expanding my social bubble more uh i'd like to have a in-person DD. i lots of people have offered but it's all online which is i know what mm-hmm. you do but I'd love yes. to return to like an in-person like D&D experience. I just find it hard because all the people I know that play already have their groups. Mm. So it's kind of hard yeah. to find that that in. Uh, I lucked out years ago when I used to work retail and a bunch of crew from the retail had like it was just the timing was like they had an established crew, but they were starting a new campaign. And I was like, oh, yeah, sweet. like so I just I came in at the right time. They found out that I was in a nerdy stuff. I was like, sweet. Um, and it was a great way to get to know people at a new job. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a, a fun, I guess, icebreaker, although sometimes tensions can run a little high at D&D, depending on if people conflict over rules and right. stuff like that. But uh, in my case, I joined the 8-Bit Communities Sunday Dungeons & Dragons campaign, um, which I was a guest on first. I, I showed up for basically two episodes where I know a bunch of guys. It's the Hot Dish in Minnesota Toz and some of the folks that we've, uh, you know, spoken to on the show even, uh, on, on the Spawn Chunks. And I... Yeah, I wanted to, like, guest for a couple of episodes, drew up a character, uh, drunken master monk named Banjo. I love him so much. Um, I turned up for two episodes and then dipped because they wanted to get a rotating cast of characters. And since then, they had one of their players drop out and they added two more and they asked me if I wanted to be involved and I said yes because I really enjoyed my time there. And so I haven't been able to play my home game of D&D much because, again, like, the in-person nature of it was never going to happen for us given that one of our players is in 
California, and another one has recently moved away from where he used to live near us in Brighton. So uh, yeah, I've I've only done D and D digitally, but oh, the the dream is is to have an in person D and D session with our group at some point. Um, for eight bit D and D though, if anybody wants to tune in, if anyone feels like watching me make a fool of myself as a, a drunken monk, uh, that's at twitch.tv slash eight bit underscore community. That's the number eight bit underscore community. And it's Sundays at noon Eastern time. And we're having a blast over there. We're playing a campaign called Princes of the Apocalypse, which is a, a pre-written thing. And our DM is masterfully guiding us through that and trying to keep us alive most of the time. <laughs> so with the drunken monk thing, like, are you RP decision making or are you like role playing, like speaking and being a little bit tipsy when you're delivering any kind of like conversation in the in the 8-bit community show? The thing about Drunken Master is it's all about deception to begin with. Is he drunk? Is he not drunk? Is he just, uh, like, okay. reacting that way? Thinking kind of Jackie Chan-style combat, really. So you you kind of put the enemy off balance, but you don't have to be drunk 100% of the time. I'd say Banjo is about 50-50 on that score. Um, every so often I have him swigging from, like, a, a bottle of wine or a, you know, wine skin or something that he's got on him. But for the most part, yeah, I like to, I like to throw in a bit of flavor here and there, but... The, for the most part, he's got a level head on his shoulders and sometimes has to do the talking because everybody in the 8-bit crew is very funny and a lot of the time we tend to we tend towards comedy before we go towards action. And I feel like our DM sometimes wants stuff to move along a little bit instead right. of us just throwing a joke around the table. So I try and I try and put my foot down occasionally. I like the Jackie Chan reference because I can imagine your monk uh, taking a swig from like a leather flask of wine but then mm. also hitting oh, yeah. an opponent with it. If you've ever seen, there's a brilliant movie. I mean, it's it's okay as as far as like the concept of the movie, but there's a kind of um, white guy gets transported into the past of ancient China movie, but starring Jet Li and Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan's character is this drunken master whose name I forget. Um, but yeah, he's he's this sort of ancient mythological figure and it has to do with the Chinese legends of, you know, the journey to the West and the Monkey King and all that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, mythology worked into it, but some incredible fight scenes. Because obviously at the time, Jackie Chan was, you know, getting up there in years, but still very capable and Jet Li was kind of at the top of his game. So there's some really good fights in there. And Jackie Chan's character is basically what I'm modeling banjo after give or take the appearance banjo looks a little different but i love the the completely kind of unpredictable flailing style of combat and yeah jackie chan in that movie top notch i don't know if you have any access to explosives in the storyline but it would be a missed opportunity if you could not use some sort of or ignite some sort of explosive with your drunken monk and then exclaim banjo kablooey <laughs> it's we, we've definitely had a few jokes like that yes it's it's almost unavoidable yeah so I have been down a nerdy train in between podcasts as well. And uh, the JWST has shared another image. Um, this isn't on the official JWST site. I've picked this up from sciencealert.com as well as news.westernu.ca. Uh, it is a uh, deep field or not deep field, but it's, it's a high res image of the Orion Nebula, uh, which is going to look like a lot of gas and clouds and, and dust and stars for the average person. But uh, what's interesting about this is that there's the prominent feature of the Orion bar, which is a dense gas and dust, um, I guess, structure that travels across the image from top left to bottom right. 
and the data from the image uh, will help scientists better understand how massive stars transform the gas and dust cloud in which they were born. And through some of these articles that we'll have linked in the show notes, you can see the comparison between the Hubble image of the Orion Nebula and the now JWST color image. And the detail and information is staggering. And what you don't get in a lot of these images is like the light wavelengths and all the different things that they can um, retrieve data from that the scientists will find useful. Um, this was a joint effort across, I think, 100 different countries. Uh, no, 100 different scientists in 18 different countries. Uh, one of which was Western University in, in Canada, which is how this came across my desk. Uh, anyway, just continuously seeing cool stuff coming out of the JWST and always great that you have, I, I would say usually there's an article that would explain it for the masses, you know, like, so like, here's a cool image, but it's not just cool. Like, here's why it's important. Here's what the scientists are going to do with this information. Um, I'll point people back to someone that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, Dr. Becky uh, on YouTube does an excellent job of speaking with um, people involved in the sciences, uh, astrophysics and the JWST. Uh, she recently interviewed someone that was actually controlling the JWST, getting images from the telescope and uh, just really, really cool stuff, but always explained with enthusiasm, but also like real world terms, like what is, you know, this thing that we're looking at and why is it important? And I'm just, I'm just mm -hmm. geeking out about all this stuff and I'm still pinching myself. Like it's not sci-fi, like this is real. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, like this absolutely it's it's funny that for a while any when Skyrim came out everybody would compare pictures of real world mountains to looking like something out of Skyrim. This to me it looks like something out of Guardians of the Galaxy or it looks yep. like something out of No Man's Sky or something like that because I almost can't comprehend that this is something we're able to capture from our own universe now it looks incredible and it also looks a lot like an eyebrow <laughs> and so the 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 red point with the the bright star underneath it or maybe even i don't know galaxy i'm not sure what we're looking at precisely here i need to sp spend some time actually reading this article but like wow it, it looks like this gleaming eye staring at you which yeah is is kind of terrifying so one thing I did learn about the JWST images is that anytime you see a very bright star with that um, hexagonal pattern, like that, those points of light shooting mm. off of it in, in six or eight different directions, that's an artifact of the way that the JWST captures images. And those right. particular um, bodies are way closer to the telescope and they're kind of like in the way, kind of like someone mm. putting your thumb in a photo kind of deal. So <laughs> right, they're not yeah, yeah. actually part of the nebula. The nebula is all the stuff that's like the little points of light and all the things that look like they're part yeah. of that cloud. That's the nebula. Whereas other things are like, well, this is like several hundred or thousand light years closer to the telescope. And it's just kind of like, it well, it's in the way right happened now. Happened to line up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I thought that was interesting because I thought like, wow, like that's either really huge or really bright. And it's like, well, it's big, but it's big because it's closer, not because it's more massive. Um, and I, I, I have a hard time computing the, the massiveness of, yeah. of all of this. Um, mm -hmm. Re really puts real life in and our life on this planet in perspective. Whenever you look at any of this stuff, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Speaking of massive undertakings, uh, the <laughs> Lord of the Rings: Rings of Power has had three episodes out now. Uh, Johnny and I have been looking forward to talking about this for quite some time. We touched on it a little bit last week, myself and Stephen giving like first impressions, no spoilers. Uh, in order to talk about this stuff, we're going to have to get into spoiler territory. So just FYI, if you have not watched the first three episodes, you might want to turn back now and come back later. 
Um, but we'll have links to, uh, of course, the, the website for Prime Video to watch it. Uh, we'll have links to IMDb and Wikipedia and a couple of other recommendations as well that we'll get into as we, as we talk. Um, but I think, and I'm going to take a page from Decoding TV, which is a podcast you and I have listened to, um, that approaching spoilers, we'll try our best to keep it as firm from the point of view of someone that has watched The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit trilogies by Peter Jackson. And probably read the Lord of the Rings books, but like not necessarily all the appendices and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I I have been really into a podcast by a guy called Corey Olson, who is the self-styled Tolkien professor. And he's been deconstructing Lord of the Rings almost like sentence by sentence, line by line over the last like five years or so and he's just started an analysis show for rings of power called rings and realms on youtube and that's the stuff that i'm getting into where it's going a lot more heavily into the influences of the books and discussing events that happen in the books that may be spoilers for the future of this show and so i'm starting to get steeped in all of that stuff but i am going to try and rein it in for this discussion because i'm also thinking about you joel i don't want to spoil stuff for well, you yes. if you're stood, kind of staying purposefully in the dark about some of the stuff that might happen later in the show and i've not read the silmarillion right so Mm. there's a few things like that i'm in the dark on but i've also watched the lord of the rings like yearly up until i think i think i was going to watch it during the pandemic but then i held off because i was waiting to get my new tv and then yeah, i think yeah, i just uh -huh. and i think i hadn't returned to it because it wasn't available in 4k anywhere like i couldn't stream it without paying for it yeah uh i've got the blu-rays but and the blu-ray would be upscaled to go on the tv but i don't know how good it would look would look so i was sure. i've been waiting yeah. to see if i can find a, a 4k version um i did watch the hobbit trilogy more recently because there was a 4k version available on i want to say it was prime video uh when i when i watched that or at least a couple of them were and then i had to watch the other one on some other platform i don't remember what it was it was last year mm -hmm. um but yeah i like so and i'm okay with theorizing like i'm okay if people if you have if you've got a theory um because because I've watched the, the the Lord of the Rings so often, there's a lot of things that they're dropping in Rings of Power that kind of tip my my brain. Go, oh, I've heard that before, or I know who yes. that is, or I know yeah. where that is. So mm -hmm. I'm not completely you know in the dark, um, but I am enjoying actually, uh, as I mentioned, decoding TV at decodingtv.com. But also uh, Don Marshall is someone that I've been following for a while before Rings of Power even became uh, something that I was aware of, uh, and he does uh, short form Lord of the Rings related content on TikTok and Twitch. Uh, he does watch parties for these these episodes on Twitch. Uh, and uh, it's just an all around nice guy. Like there's lots of people out there that know a lot about Lord of the Rings, but he just the way that he shares his content. And I like that he's not a gatekeeper. Like he, Don yeah. Marshall really opens up the door. He has fun with it. Uh, I think he's he's said a number of times in the last few episodes that I've listened to him speak on where he's talking about it's it's no thoughts just vibes like don't overthink yeah. <laughs> too hard and I like yeah. that you know like I like the fact that he can have he can have fun with this for example before getting into the rings uh, of power I watched a three minute video where he summarized the Silmarillion <laughs> I mean yeah. like and he had to talk like the guy that used to do the advertisements for micro machines, like he was talking yeah, a yeah. mile a minute. And all <laughs> He's of it like was like an auctioneer. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. It was all of this, like, you know, bad things happen. It's like, and this Morgoth made a Balrog. Hint, hint, by the way. You know, like, just like, just, yeah. The, mm -hmm. the, just all these kind of droppings and things. And, and I thought that was really interesting. So, I mean, I've got some ideas about what's going to happen. I, there's also been some things that have been mentioned or I've seen on social media that I didn't know about that I think, oh, okay, well, 
I thought I knew where this was going, but now I'm not so sure. And that's cool. Like I like not being able to predict where shows go, but anyway, we can get into it. Um, and since you're, you're here and the guest, I'd love to know kind of like your initial thoughts, your overall thoughts kind of going in and, and looking at the rings of power. So I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, I've read the book a bunch of times, but the movies were really one of those things that cemented it for me as one of the most crucial pieces of fiction in my life, just in terms of overall enjoyment and what the message of the movie meant to me and all of that stuff. So I, I love Lord of the Rings, the Peter Jackson trilogy. I was sort of dissatisfied by the Hobbit trilogy by comparison. It mm -hmm. didn't seem to have the same sort of magic and... I think a lot of it comes down to how artificial some of it felt. I think on a lot of ways, there were moments that felt like set pieces that drew attention to the fact that they were set pieces. There were sections of it that felt like I was on a theme park ride instead of being absorbed in the world. And obviously, The Hobbit is intended for children. The story, the initial story was intended for children. And so they were clearly pitching it towards family entertainment in a way that Lord of the Rings didn't really feel like it was. It was just trying to retell the story in a way that worked for film. And so I feel like The Hobbit didn't really capture the magic Lord of the Rings had. On a scale between those two, I think The Rings of Power is comfortably sitting at the Lord of the Rings trilogy end of the scale. Um, I don't think it's quite got the magic that those movies had, but it's very close. And on balance, I'm finding it a lot more palatable than I found The Hobbit movies. Um, and... I kind of instantly got drawn into the world. The prologue, I thought, was really well executed, giving a good job of, like, telling people the backstory without getting too bogged down in the details. And, in fact, I feel like they don't actually have the rights to the details in a lot of ways. Yes, there has yeah. been much, much discussion online about what they are able to portray in this show, and a lot of the stuff that happened in that prologue had to be told in broad strokes because they don't have the rights to the most detailed retelling of it that happens in the Silmarillion um but I think they did really good stuff with what they had and I think the coolest part about this is that the conversation Galadriel has at the start with her brother Finrod um was the moment I knew that they were going to do a really great job with the source material there was so much to unpack there and his initial kind of discussion with her about like the difference between a stone and a ship and that a stone only looks downward and is destined to fall into the abyss and a ship can look upwards to the stars for guidance and then she responds to that by saying well how do i know the difference between the stars and when the water is really still and the light of the stars is reflected back from the abyss and i just went whoa okay like the the writing on the show it's not necessarily Tolkien's own words, and I don't feel like they're going for specifically an imitation of Tolkien. They're not going for Tolkien's prose in terms of the voice of it, but they're trying to capture the spirit of Tolkien's writing, which is really borne out in themes and the broad strokes like that. So honestly, I think while there's been a lot of discussion about this online, I think the writing has a lot more nuance than people are giving it credit for and is going to stand up to repeated viewings in a really strong way. And I think sometimes the lack of dialogue is is key to that. Uh, oh, there's, yeah. there's a lot of um, sweeping vistas and establishing shots and moments where if there is dialogue happening, one character is talking, but the other character is very poignant and just kind of listening for long periods of time. And I find that much better than like the constant back and forth you'd see in, in modern shows a lot of the time. 
And it's not as quippy as like your average no. Marvel movie, which no. I think people were concerned about. People yeah. were worried that they were going to modernize it too much. And I think they've they found a happy medium. I mean, t- talking about like wordless exchanges and, and moments where people don't speak, you have this stranger character as well who doesn't speak for basically the first three episodes. He's uttered his first English words in episode three, right at the end, basically. And so, yeah, th- there is definitely a lot to be said for both the, the the moments that they let breathe and the value of silence in a show that they could pack so much information into and so many references and lore drops from the book and they're choosing to take their time with it and pace themselves a little. I think a really good example of that is uh, a scene in the episode one where the company of elves that Galadriel is leading north all lay down their swords and yeah uh-huh. you, know, you get you know what what it's like how, what they mean by it because of the conversation she has with one uh privately uh who seems to be like the leader of or the second in command sort of deal um but but they there's no big speech like they just raise the swords lay them down and then they turn around and go home and it's just like they don't all shout mutiny or yeah, whatever right exactly. there's <laughs> yeah. no arguments like if it was a modern show or if it was written poorly there'd be squabbles you know like you'd be you'd be watching reality show fight in the kitchen you know and and it's it's not that at all and so i just i like the fact that they tell the story visually which means and i've not that i've been on my phone but you can't do anything else when you watch the show you've got to have your full attention focused on it definitely and i think for tolkien readers some of these characters even people who've you know watched and loved the uh, the the original movie trilogies, some of these characters are going to feel very different to their older selves who we meet later. And I think, you know, you and Stephen kind of unpacked this a little bit on the last show where you were talking about Galadriel and how she's kind of being shut down by a lot of the elves around her and has a bit of a different mm-hmm. characterization than we're used to from Kate Blanchett's Galadriel. She's a little bit more hot-headed. Um, she's kind of the obvious example here of a character that you don't expect to be acting like that. And I think there is enough scope in Tolkien's original writings for this to be a valid interpretation of the character, but it's also a sign that this character is going to end up as the Kate Blanchett character who we see in Peter Jackson's trilogy, but we're going to see the journey that she takes in order to get there. And I'll have more thoughts on that later, but generally speaking, I think a lot of people's concerns about this show have been that characters don't seem as they imagined them to be, and I think there is room for interpretation there that like, is really going to be borne out over the course of the show. And I think, too, because there's such a large swath of time, specifically for elves, uh, in the time period where the show takes place, which is, I believe, the second age in yes. Tolkien's lore. Um, and there's not really a lot said, or what is said is not entirely interesting about characters like Galadriel during that time. Uh, yeah. You have like uh-huh. a, a bookmark of like, oh, she went to this city and she went to that city and i'm i'm paraphrasing from other media that i've consumed like decoding tv and listening to to don marshall but like that kind of stuff is like okay well that's great but uh, like who would want the show to be true to the books if that's the case because that would be boring you know like i I can appreciate the fact that they want to make these characters interesting and and if you've got a, a show like a prequel where you know the character doesn't die then you have to put them on some sort of emotional journey because the peril just doesn't you know, it's not a, a big edge of your seat thing. Uh, I experienced yeah. that with, uh, and I won't get into spoilers because I don't know if you've seen it, but um, the Obi-Wan series. 
Um, I have not seen it. Yeah. Right. So uh, like we all know, I mean, not a giant spoiler, you know, Obi-Wan and Vader don't die because they're in a new hope. Right. Yeah. So you know mm-hmm. that, that both of them survive any kind of encounter that's going to happen. So what do you do? You have to put Obi-Wan on some sort of emotional journey to make it an yeah. interesting show. And they did that. And I, which I thought was, was good. Uh, and, um, with Lord, with rings of power, I feel like it's the same sort of idea. We're getting these life lessons or emotional lessons or uh observations of the world around them and i think it's going to be really interesting to watch the elf characters in particular because of how long they live and the perspective that they get when things around them change to them it feels like you know fleeting but then to the rest of middle earth it feels like there's lifetimes generations go by as as the the earth changes i really appreciated um the monologue and the the prologue to let us know like what had gone on and kind of give you an idea i did feel like it was a little bit vague in some places like they mentioned morgoth they sort of show a shadowy figure in the clouds but like i'd still as much as i know it probably won't happen i i kind of want some sort of not personification but i would have liked to have seen like what he looked like or some sort of manifestation of like something that they were up against. Uh, yeah. In the same way that the prologue in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, even though Sauron in the Lord of the Rings is a faceless, you know, eye wreathed in flame, he somewhere's in Mordor, he's a voice. Um, whereas in the in the prologue in, in Lord of the Rings, they, they give you a, like a big black, armored scary dude yeah yeah they they meet him on the battlefield yeah, at that they, point it yeah. gives you if it gives you the threat you know like it gives you like he hasn't reached physical form yet and it's like okay well i remember what the physical form was we don't want that <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. bad so he gives you kind of like the motivation for the characters in the, in the trilogy and with rings of power I, I could have used a little bit more of that but i also have to confess that it was a very hot day when i was watching the first episode and i had my ac on and so i really need to go back and watch the first couple of episodes again but like loud and without a fan going like because i feel like <laughs> sure in a good way the show doesn't beat you to death with information they say it once and you better be paying attention and yeah that includes the visuals like that includes you know the tree that dies and where the elves are in relation to middle earth and i mean me having dinner with my dad explaining to to him that you know the the west lands i can't remember the name of them right now lothlorien no that's the that's the elven valinor valinor thank you yeah Yeah. valinor so talking about valinor my dad thinks valinor is heaven it's like well sort of it's an allegory for heaven but it's not heaven because it's still a physical place like Mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff and and i feel like some of that if you're not steeped in the tolkien verse then that's going to go over your head uh and i think that there would a little bit more like i don't necessarily want like a indiana jones you know map (laughs) with a red line you know going across the world but it would i think a little bit more visual clarity could have been good um but other than that it was good fun fun story about that because honestly i was quite surprised by what we actually got to see of the first age considering they don't have the rights to the silmarillion which is probably why you didn't see anything more visually right concrete because that was the stuff that they weren't really allowed to say i'm I'm quite surprised that we got to see 
the two trees of Valinor, which are basically what provides light to the world before the sun and moon are created. Um, so there's basically this, this eternal light in Valinor, and then the trees are darkened by Morgoth. They are very vague about the, how that happens in the show. In the books, and I'll tell you this because it's not a spoiler for the show because they're clearly not going to show it, Morgoth, the great enemy, the one of the, the kind of lesser rung of gods... The, the angels, more or less, who um, is basically the rebel. He's the Satan figure of the entirety of Middle-earth. He shows up with a spider. <laughs> and and this, this spider is called Ungoliant. She is the mother of all, like, spiders. She's basically Shelob's mother or grandmother or something like that, right? So if you know Shelob from the, uh, the I guess, the end of Two Towers, maybe beginning of Return of the King? I forget where they yeah, inserted both. that in yeah, the movies. But yeah, both, yeah. Yeah, um, so... Imagine a spider like that, but larger and weaving webs made of darkness. And this spider, because she lives in darkness, basically eats light. She consumes light. And Morgoth tempts her to come over to Valinor in order to help him drain the light out of the trees. And basically, if we saw a more realistic depiction of how that happened, you would basically have seen a giant spider eating the trees at the base of the trunk and then all the light draining out of them. So how exactly how credible that seems in, on screen is kind of open to interpretation, but it requires, I guess, an additional investment of their special effects budget and additional rights negotiations, which would probably cost them a lot more if they were even able to do them at all. And a lot of people are going to be like, really? That's how the trees get dark? I think it's nice that we see them in the prologue in a more mythic sense, and we're told that whole thing as though somebody is retelling it through history and just leaving out some of the key details. Yeah, you kind of got the the image of, I guess, a Morgoth-like figure in the clouds, kind of like mm. outstretched hand, and then the tree kind of goes dark as if he's just like turned off the light switch sort of deal. Yeah, um, yeah. But it, I think that some of this stuff, which I think is inaccessible to people that are not as steeped in fantasy or not as steeped in the Tolkien universe um, is similar to when you get into things like Dormammu in uh, Doctor Strange. Like, yeah, you can see like Thanos, bad guy, head to toe, giant purple, weird alien, but still physical thing in front of you that you have to deal with. And it's a lot easier to kind of compute that as people, like as humans, than it is to mm -hmm. like a giant floating head you know, of, of a space God that's made up of pure energy or pure emotion or like what it gets really esoteric. And I think that when you get into gods and goddesses and half gods and demigods and all that kind of stuff in Tolkien, which you don't really get a lot of, uh, in the movies, like in the Lord of the Rings, if you're coming at it from just watching the films, it's all very physical with the exception of Sauron. Everything is yeah. very, very physical, you know, orcs, physical threat. Um, you know, um, even, even the physical nature of, uh, fighting back these things, even people with powers like Gandalf, still physical person that you can put yeah. in the arm, you know? Uh, and I find that that, that kind of stuff is, um, is more accessible, but, but yeah, like I think they've done a really good job of, of setting things up and specifically when you get into, you know, if we can touch on, uh, the, the visuals, like the draw dropping nearly all the time visuals between, like the physical sets, the costumes, there is some green screen, but it's used very well. Uh, I feel like there was one or two moments in the last episode that kind of pulled me out, but most of the time it's, it's very, very, very good. Uh, yeah. and then you've got like the big sweeping shots, which are, 
I'm assuming either 100% CG and we're just that good at it now, or they're a combination of like a, you know, a helicopter shot somewhere in like Hawaii mm-hmm. or something like that. And then they, you know, or New, New Zealand, Zealand yeah. or New Zealand. And then, and then of course they, they lay in the different, you know, stuff over top of that. But the architectural and production design is just off the charts. You know, oh, yeah. like no, it's, it's stunning. Yeah. Many times I've just been like, holy crap out loud here alone in my apartment, like a uh, Numenor, <laughs> like, uh, and then what's the, I can't remember the name of the elf capital in, in uh, there is, we see Tyrion, um, we see Eregion, and then we see Linden. Linden is where Gilgalad is, who's like the High King of the Elves. Right. And then Eregion is where Celebrimbor is that Elrond is invited to go and work with. Yeah, I think Linden is the one that I remember because that was in either episode one or two. I think it was in episode one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like that that stuff uh, really helps. Like it helps kind of transport you to Middle Earth. It's much better than going from inside set to inside set and i think that's one of the strengths of having you know a big budget like amazon does for for this kind of show yeah i mean from a professional perspective i'm eyeballing it all for minecraft build inspiration which is one of the things i took into (laughs) this show to begin with was saying like even if it turns out the show sucks i still want to look at all the visuals Mm because they've got you know renowned tolkien artists working on this they had some of alan lee and john howe's stuff to work work from and like the 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 team knows what they're doing just from watching the trailers i thought the production design on this is stunning and the rest of the show holds up to that um the costumes and makeup are also excellent i, I mean i look at the dwarves of casa doom and i'm convinced they are dwarves i'm not like oh that's an actor wearing prosthetics in a costume and stuff it it transports you there and i think that's really good and while there was there was long debate online over whether the dwarf women should have beards or not. <laughs> I'm kind of fine with it either way. Uh, I expect they've done some like screen tests with certain costumes and decided against that, just so the the dwarves who are clearly women kind of stand out a little bit more. Um, and it's also quite difficult to act through a beard, especially if you're not used to one. So so maybe that was a consideration too. But I do think they're doing a really good job costuming each of the. The, the different factions that we see are the different storylines all taking place in different locales and they their costumes tell a story almost without them having to enact a story on screen. You can look at the humans of the Southlands and their kind of bedraggled cloths and like torn garments and stuff and think, okay, they're probably a little bit, they're going through hard times right now compared to the elves of Linden who are, you know, at the top of their game at this moment in time. A creator that I've I've seen online, and I apologize, I don't remember uh, their name, but they were sharing details about the pauldrons that Elrond wears in that scene where mm. he's breaking rocks. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. After yeah. he stripped off his cloak, he's still got like kind of like shoulder pad type things, and they're they're feathery, like they're full of feathers. And he was explaining that like it's not a need to know, but it's a nice to know that his mother had some adventure and experience and was bestowed wings by uh, one of the Tolkien, either gods or demigods. And anyway, yeah, so it's, she, it's the Valar. It's yeah. usually the Valar. <laughs> yeah. So she, so she had wings. And so in honor of his mother, his like, there's a lot of feathers in his, in his armor and wardrobe and things. Yeah. They're, they're subtle. They just, it kind of looks like feathers underneath, but they're, they're not, they're not real feathers. They're, they're like either material or leather or, or, or metal or whatever they are. Uh, and, and I just thought that was a nice detail for like, so, so there's a lot there for the Tolkien nerds that are just like deep, deep in knowledge and can spot those references. And for the rest of us, it just looks like beautifully, you know, crafted costumes. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's so much detail in this that it's clear that everybody involved in the production was doing their research, you know, was was looking for any clues they could use to enhance some of the, the performance or enhance the costumes in some way or another. And it also leaves a lot of the original characters open to interpretation in a really interesting way because we were talking before about like the expectations people brought in about the the known characters from the books but then you look at characters like Theo and Bronwyn and the stranger and Arondir and you know you those are the ones that we can feel free to speculate a little more about their origins because those haven't been dictated by Tolkien beforehand or haven't had to be adapted from Tolkien for this show and so you look at the costuming choices they're making with the stranger and they are clearly allusions to a specific type of character but you don't know for certain if they're doing that intentionally and it's a red herring or if they're actually setting up yeah. that this character is going to be Gandalf for example like they're dressing him in a lot of kind of cloths and stuff but that's just because that's what the Harfoots have around it's such a clever way to approach some of those original characters because some of them you instantly understand what that character is what they do who they are their position in the society that we find them placed in but then with characters like the stranger even the costuming choices are keeping him a mystery at this point and part of the mystery too is is the bouncing around you know in in the story and the ensemble cast approach it's not just following one particular band of of friends you know like the fellowship throughout the first film is all not it's not linear but you basically stick with the hobbits you know yeah you're, you're in frodo's perspective for basically all of that except for a couple of flashbacks from gandalf and elrond i think that's the only time you really leave the hobbits at any point exactly and that's why i'm really enjoying all the elven perspective because it's not a perspective we get in lord of the rings we we get moments but really the in-depth like i've been around for thousands of years you know from galadriel uh, there's a lot there's a series of exchanges she has on, on the raft when she's adrift in, at sea where she talks about like i can't name all of the elves that have died in my life in in this war to you because you wouldn't live long enough for me to finish the <laughs> yeah. list like it just <laughs> oh. it's 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 a it's a a, a, a real real slight and just like look you've been here for a hot minute please don't give me your your bs right like it's just mm -hmm. I, it's as I do find sometimes um, elves in Lord of the Rings to be condescending, not always, but I, I do find there's a lot of condescension and it does rob me the wrong way sometimes. Because you think like elves are supposed to be these nice, graceful, you know, worldly and educated and all this kind of stuff. And they a lot of times they just don't seem to have time for men <laughs> like the, yeah, or mankind, I mean, you know. It, it depends where you're getting that impression of elves from, because the elves in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings are a lot more serene feeling, mm -hmm. but we're also meeting the elves there at the end of the third age when they are basically done with middle earth and about to leave so a lot of them are just we're not taking any kind of you know influence in events anymore we're not stepping in to intercede we are leaving middle earth and that's why they all sound kind of more calm their influence over middle earth has dimmed their life force has dimmed and this all goes back to Tolkien's idea that over time, the great civilizations are just constantly in decline. You kind of see the same thing with Numenor in this show, and you're meeting Numenor at the end of their reign, more or less. But with the elves, the elves in the First and Second Age are a lot more active, a lot more hot-headed. They go to war 
with each other, with the forces of evil, with dwarves. Like, there's constantly... Basically, the entirety of the Silmarillion is the story of the First Age, and it's just elves fighting stuff and dying all the time. <laughs> and so when people come to this series and they think, wow, Galadriel seems like she's got a bit of a chip on her shoulder yeah <laughs> it turns out that's because she's lived for a couple of thousand years at this point and she's seen most of the people she knows die when elves are supposed to be immortal and like the, the, there's a whole thing about whether or not elves truly ever die their souls are supposed to basically go back to valinor and they lie in state in effectively like purgatory for a while and then they are released into the undying lands and so they'll see each other again but then they have the decision to whether or not they go back to Valinor at all uh, kind of gets brought into question. So there's a lot going on with elves that people don't necessarily think about when they've just been watching Peter Jackson's trilogy or reading Lord of the Rings. And the Silmarillion paints a very different picture of elves that I think gets glossed over by a lot of people who are just still expecting elves to be these otherworldly kind of characters. And they can express some of that stuff with a bit more of a calm exterior, but you've always got to wonder what's going on underneath. They're, there's, they're very enigmatic entities overall, and so this can just feel like one interpretation of that. And I like seeing the emotion in them. Like, I like seeing either, uh, I don't want to say sorrow, but like, you know, well, anger with Galadriel or yeah. uh, pain, or then with Elrond, you've got uh, regret. <laughs> yes, is, absolutely. Is, you know, which is not something, again, you associate with with elves, uh, but I and I like the way that they're painting it. And to to not like focus too much on elves, like the ensemble story, like the different casts you're following, like the the Harfoots, which are you know they look they remind us all about hobbits. Uh, and then you've got you know elves and whatever the stranger is. Uh, there's now uh, orcs and men, and then there's two different camps of men. Like there's like the Southlands, but then there's also Numenor, and I like that we're jumping around because where there isn't a lot of material on some of these characters, either that Amazon has the rights to, or it just isn't, you know, doesn't exist in the Tolkien, you know, writings, then if they tried to make the entire show about like, you know, uh, Elrond and Galadriel, like just the two of them all the time, I think that they'd start having to like make a lot of stuff up and it would start yeah. to deviate to the point where people would get unsatisfied or like there's only so many stories you can tell something that Brockett says all the time on the show. And it's just like, you don't want to have the Galadriel Elrond show start to feel like a buddy cop or anything else that has been done <laughs> in media before. Right. Cause you'd spot it immediately. And yeah. I think bouncing around is, is one of the strengths of, of the show and keeps me interested for sure. Um, I, speaking of stories, like one of the things that I like about, middle earth in particular in this show which i don't know if i really got from the lord of the rings trilogy is that i feel like middle earth is one of the characters because it's mm -hmm. so far in the past like um talking about peril not being a real thing for say galadriel you know she doesn't die so you know the ice troll in episode one it's not gonna kill her you know it's fine yeah <laughs> um uh -huh. i mean gives her an opportunity to do, do a cool sword jump like hey i'm oh, all for that kind of stuff the sword jump though it was it was so funny but but that was the first moment that was like all right that was a little bit goofy <laughs> it, yeah. it was it was her running up a sword and leaping at this thing i was like could she have just like found a nearby rock i don't know the the running up the sword just seemed hilarious to me but not in a way that was like oh this is ridiculous i don't want to watch this show no i think the only thing that for me was like i saw that it's like well that was a little bit um deliberate but then i was like well i mean i watched 
um oh god uh Gimli and what is it uh Legolas Legolas I'll, I'll watch Legolas like shield surf <laughs> down mm-hmm. a set of yeah. stairs and kill orcs yeah. counting them as he went so like yeah there's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek I think uh in, in some of this but and i i think it established her as just like a badass you know um i did find it funny like she cut down this ice troll in like two moves whereas like it was owning the rest of her company yeah <laughs> but, yeah but yeah. I, because you don't know how old they all are like each one of those elves could have been a couple hundred years old and she could be a thousand years old as their general like it just, you know mm-hmm. she could have had just eons of experience compared to them so it's it's hard to it's hard to say but to get back to the point about about the world that's what I like so much about the show is that Middle Earth as a character, you know, you're kind of plunked into the end of the third age in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and everything is just as it is. You just kind of accept as a fantasy fan, dark, scary place in the South, Mordor, bad, uh, you know, humans kind of in the middle, not the best people, uh, Rivendell, very pretty, very elven, like it's the good place, you know, Shire, peaceful and green. And you just kind of accept all of that. But in this show, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Like the Southlands on that map is kind of where I remember Mordor being. So I get to find out how Mordor is built and becomes mm-hmm. Mordor. Like I am on board for that. You know, oh, yes. I'm, I'm interested to see these human kingdoms before they're destroyed. Seeing Khazad-dûm before it is a giant tomb, you know, and, and seeing it alive and green was really, really cool. And there's yeah. as much character development in Middle Earth as there is some of the characters that we're following in the story. Yeah, there absolutely is. And Tolkien even characterizes some of the land of Middle-earth almost as though it has a consciousness, that it has character. Like, in the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, when the team is making their way over the mountain range and the snow kind of falls and they have to turn back and that's when they go through Moria... In the movies, it's because Saruman is causing avalanches or something like that. But, you know, the whole there's a fell voice on the air kind of thing. In the books, it's more like the mountain itself is laughing at them. The mountain is characterized as being cruel. And so there are locations in Tolkien's world that feel like they have a personality of their own anyway. But even then, yeah, the the influence that the characters within this show are going to have on the world can be brought to bear in the fact that we know what the world is going to look like by the time the third age rolls around yes moria is going to be the new name for khazad doom the black pit you know it becomes a tomb for dwarven kind sometime in the third age although we have seen a balrog already in the trailers for this show so it's kind of unclear if they're going to cover the events that lead to the doom of the dwarves there a little bit earlier than intended but still like there's a couple of details like that that are yet to be shown in the show either way the timeline of this show is going to be pretty compressed as well so you're going to see a lot of stuff happening in a way that in tolkien's chronology happens over the span of about three thousand years (laughs) it's not going to happen that way in this show because of course you have like it if you want to take that and and stretch that over the course of the 50 hours i think they say they have planned for five seasons of this show the human characters are going to be dying every two or three episodes yeah (laughs) if if you're if you're taking the normal human lifespan the numenorians live a little bit longer but um if you if you go back to the the appendix b in lord of the rings that has the kind of chronology of all of the stuff that happens in the second age sauron establishes mordor in basically year 1000 
of the Second Age. He forges the One Ring in 1600. <laughs> so there are 600 years just in those two spans, right? Which I think makes sense if you're imagining him basically building a nation. But as far as the show is concerned, they can't take that long to do anything if they want to keep some of these characters relevant and in the viewer's eye because you're gonna have to remember somebody's name for a couple of episodes and then they're gonna go away for good and you can do that stuff if you're playing around with the fiction of things and elves having virtually infinite lifespans and the men of Numenor living for three or four hundred years but you can't do that from a television perspective it's just not going to work that way um so it's yeah it's impossible for the show to take place over the same timeline the Harfoots wouldn't last particularly long either and there could be significant time jumps between each season but it seems unlikely the show is going to span any longer than you know 50 to 100 years at the outside i think and i think another way to look at it uh which is yet to be revealed is kind of like a an interesting theory again from don marshall very fun to watch i encourage people to go follow don uh was saying like do we think all of these different storylines that we're following in uh rings of power are happening at the same time Ooh. there are some that are because <laughs> you're seeing elrond and um durin interact with one another right so that's that's there that experience is happening for both of them at the same time uh, and then, you know, you've got the the Elven stuff, but then you've got the different stuff with men and the Harfoots and the Harfoots and the Stranger, we, they haven't interacted with anybody. We saw humans walk by them, <laughs> but that's it. And yeah. so I thought, I, I don't know. And I, and it's, I don't think that's the case, but it's an interesting way to kind of keep you guessing. Uh, it's it's a fun theory. I think there are a few connecting events like the meteor falling and, you know, when, when we see the elves in the Southlands who are watching over the humans who were previously in, you know, many generations previous uh, followers of Morgoth, yep. they are told that the High King has declared that the war is over, which is something that happens in basically the previous scene. Yeah. So I, I can see the, uh, the, the, the attraction of an idea where, yes, Tolkien's chronology is slightly preserved by this being a, a Pulp Fiction kind of thing where we sure. don't know if things are happening in this order, but you know, something tells me it's not working out that way. And an, another question that was posed by by Don Marshall, was it one meteor? There was five yeah. different shots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is it one? Yeah, yeah. Is it five? I, I, I just, I like the fact that those questions are out there and there might be someone that is, is like Don that has a lot of information and a lot of, you know, uh, inside thoughts that can have a have a guess but he doesn't just say flat out i think it's this sometimes it's it's more like here's an interesting question it could just be one it's it's very likely just one but you know the little nods for like there's five shots for five specific reasons and like i think that that could be fun to kind of play around with because listening to extra podcasts and things helped me uh because i didn't realize they squished the timeline I didn't mm -hmm. know yeah. that they, one, shifted the events from the middle of the Third Age towards the end of the Third, uh, sorry, Second Age, and middle of the Second Age towards the end of the Second Age. And uh, I didn't realize that they had compressed the certain things together so that you'd have Galadriel uh, interacting with people like, uh, or not interacting yet, but like you'd have on screen or in the same show characters like Galadriel, but then also human characters that you'd recognize like Elendil and Isildur. And you're just like, I know those names. I've seen yeah. Isildur. 
that's the guy that cuts the ring off Sauron's hand in the prologue of the Peter Jackson trilogy. So yeah. that's where my brain, like I'm cool with the elves because the elves is like, well, they're immortal. I don't, it doesn't need what happened a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago. Doesn't really matter to me in terms of the lifespan of an elf. I just know that as long as they experienced it, it just kind of, that is information that their character has to inform how they're going to go forward. But it was the name drops of human characters that I remembered. And I was like, wait a minute, I am confused now because in the dwarves, they kind of do during the third, during the fourth, you know, they, the names mm -hmm. kind of like keep on going. So it's like, well, I guess they could have done like Il Sildor the first through the fifth, if this is how I'm going to believe this. But once I found out that it was compressed timeline, I thought, oh, that makes more sense. So I can still think of these ages as long lifespans of elves. But if I'm just thinking about this is happening within like two to three human generations from now to when we see, you know, the beginning of, or the prologue at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, I thought, okay, well, that makes more sense to me. It, it's less of a reach to identify with human generations than it is elves. And I would argue that there are things in our culture in 2022 that people are forgetting that is only as old as our grandparents would have been. You yeah. know, like oh, it, there, there are things that my grandfather who passed away 20 years ago um, experienced that not a lot of people these days think about. And mm -hmm. and it's it's a shame because it's important, <laughs> you know, sometimes, yeah. you know, not to get into politics on this show, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening. And you're just kind of like, you no know one, well, you're not paying attention, you know, 60 years ago because this is bad. Like we don't want to re yeah. repeat of that. And I feel like the show um, having that illustrated in the lifetime of a couple generations of humans them forgetting just how bad sauron was i feel like has a little bit more of a punch to it than you know humans forgetting who sauron was over the lives of a couple of elves well yeah <laughs> it's yeah. 2000 yeah, years so that makes more sense right it feels more of a natural thing to happen than a than a huge mistake you know yeah we sort of see this play out in the Southlands, where there is this inter interesting dynamic between the elves and the men. We see a lot of elves just kind of doing elf society over in Linden, but in the Southlands, Arondir is basically a cop. Um, and the humans there aren't really happy that they've been watched by elves for a thousand years because their ancestors were allied with Morgoth. But then it turns out that one of them, apparently the farmer, I guess, he, he gets it out of, like, uh, 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 under the floorboards in the barn. There's, like, this cursed sword <laughs> that's there that drinks yep. the kid's blood when he, like, has he has it in his hand. Um, and, and obviously that's the area that we know is going to become Mordor. I think now it's called Tir Harad. Um, I call it free real estate as far as Sauron is concerned. Um, and, and there are and there are orcs under the floorboards and they're tunneling and all of that kind of stuff. So it's very dramatic over there. But that is where we get to see the the dynamic of an elf lifespan and them still saying, well, you, you guys were with Morgoth, right? And he's like, I barely know who Morgoth is, you know, mm -hmm. and they're, they're more interested in their own king returning and claiming power, which at the more or less the end of the third episode, we discover is potentially Halbrand, who Galadriel is hanging out with in Numenor right now. Um, let's stay in the Southlands for a second, though, because what did you think of the scene where the orc comes up out of the floorboards and they have a fight in Bronwyn's cottage? So the fight itself was odd. I thought it strange that um, Bronwyn 
sort of ran, but didn't ran, run, but then left her kid behind. Like the, the whole sequence went really fast. But I thought the the way that the orc emerged was cool uh, because we had previously discovered that there were uh, orcs tunneling underneath a neighboring town. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to say it was uh, Erendir that, that went in and searched around and eventually is... Chase very claustrophobic oh, tunnel sequence. Gee, oh, yeah, th yeah, that made my skin crawl. Uh, <laughs> very uncomfortable. Yeah, and then there was one. I don't remember whether it was the end of episode one or in or in episode two where he was kidnapped. I think it was the end of episode two where like he's in a dark cave and the hands come from the darkness and grab him and pull him in. Yeah, yeah. And that scene, along with um, a scene I really liked, which was the reveal of the orc's eyes under the floorboards, because mm -hmm. there's been if you're again if you're not paying attention, Bronwyn and her son is it Theo? Is that that's, that's Theo, Theo. Yeah. yeah. They're talking about a mouse driving them crazy under the floorboards and he's mm -hmm. tr like trying to catch it and he's just being a bratty kid complaining about the mouse. And then you ha hear all this information about the orcs and, and you see what happened in the neighboring town. And then he's still um, complaining about the, the mouse and it's loud. And you're like, oh, that's not a mouse. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and, no mouse. <laughs> exactly. And then the floorboards are, are broken and then there's this reveal of the eyes in the darkness and oh, like that, that to me was like a nod to, to Peter Jackson and some of the things that he did in, I think the fellowship with the orcs and Moria and the different reveals of like eyeballs in the dark and stuff like that. Like I was like, oh wow, that is creepy. Uh, and definitely I'm not a horror fan, but I like little nods like that. I think that's kind of a fun, a fun thing. Cause there's just as much to be said about like something that's shrouded in darkness with eyeballs as it is to have like a full-fledged, you know, CG monster ice troll chasing you. Like, yeah. I think that there's a lot of stuff left to your imagination uh, is, is really well done. I thought the mole, uh, the mole troll or the mole orc was a little weird looking. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I thought that that was kind of a stretch. I could have, for me, I just thought, I just thought it was orcs. Like, I just thought it was a bunch of little orcs that were digging. I didn't think of it as like an actual... Um, specifically genetically engineered you know well, digging yeah thing they're, they're they're more kind of wearing skulls of different creatures and yeah. they've got like claws that they may be using to dig but i don't think it's necessarily genetic engineering so much as it is actual engineering it's, yeah. it's a little bit more like they've crafted tools that help them oh, okay do what they're trying to do it all went by so fast that whole sequence reminds me of something like Alien. You know, it's like it's mm -hmm. it's a couple of people against one thing that is clearly much more powerful than they are. Yes, like they try and kill this orc over and over again, or at least like you know put a put a knife in its back and have it injured whilst they escape, and it doesn't work like three or four different times. And it's only when they end up working together she's man managed to like cut this thing's head off. But it makes one orc a threat. Where in the movies, because you know if if we've watched them in sequence, the last f fights between the men and elves and and orcs and everything they're like mowing down the orcs like a single orc is not a problem when they're having giant fields of combat uh, uh, assaults on gondor but if you've got one orc in a house with two relatively unprepared humans one of whom is a child then suddenly the stakes are very different and the orcs in this age are potentially even more powerful because once again all of tolkien's civilizations including the orcs you know decline over time so where the orcs in the third age are potentially just cannon fodder during these fights the orcs in the second age might be more powerful because they've had less time to kind of water down the good orc stock i guess um 
So I really enjoyed that. And I have my suspicions about where things are going with Theo. Um, I think it could be short for Theoden, mm. um, which is the name of the King of Rohan in uh, in the, the end of the Third Age. And I mean, it does just mean king. I think in the Anglo-Saxon kind of derivative language Tolkien is working with, it just means king, um, which has a couple of potential options because we don't know who Theo's father is. And so potentially that's Halbrand, who is now king of the Southlands, as far as we know. Um, potentially he's also related to some other noble line. But one of the other things that we probably will end up seeing in the show that Tolkien doesn't write a lot about, we don't know the origins necessarily, but the Nazgul have to come from somewhere during this. There have to be nine human kings to whom Sauron gives the nine rings of power that end up turning them into the Ringwraiths. And so every noble birth human in this show has the potential to become a Nazgul at some point. And that's another prospect that people who are familiar with Tolkien's work are looking forward to in this show because that's something Tolkien himself never really wrote extensively about except maybe a few short vignettes of stuff related to the Witch King of Angmar but even then we don't know his origins necessarily so there is the prospect of Nazgul being seeded throughout the human characters in this show and some of that coming to bear later on. And I like that so much because of the wiggle room that they have with you know the yeah. showrunners you know um, because of the, I mean, to me, that sword hilt that Theo has, like it's, it's very clearly a Morgul blade, or at least it's, it's meant to make you think of that because it looks the same. It has the reverse special effect when it drinks his blood and creates more of the blade. It's the reverse yeah. of what happens when, uh, Aragorn pulls the dagger out of Frodo and it kind of disintegrates and like falls into yeah. dust on the ground. And the I, sword is being built in yeah. almost the same way that you feel like Mordor is being built around him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's some really, really interesting stuff. And I, for me, the um, the thing with all the human kings, like that's where I'm the foggiest. I don't remember all the different lines because of, of the different stories and stuff like that. I even have, you know, I had to listen to a, a external media to figure out that, you know, Aragorn is descended from Numenor. Uh, at least I think that's what I've understood. So correct yeah. me if I'm mm -hmm. wrong, but like, but that's kind of like, basically yeah. a, he's a direct descendant of Elendil and Isildur. In, in the books, he shouts Elendil when he goes into battle as right. like a war cry. So yeah, he's, he's descended from that line very distantly because there's another, another 3000 years or so before we get Aragorn after the events of the second age, but still, yeah. And this is just me bringing my own stuff from the Lord of the Rings because I never thought of Aragorn's ancestors as not from Middle-earth. Mm -hmm. I knew that they were long lived, you know, the Dunedain, like all that kind of stuff. But I didn't yeah. think that they were from somewhere else. I kind of thought they were just together. Like I kind of figured like, well, maybe an elf and a human get a little bit friendly. And <laughs> that's why these humans are living a long time. Uh, like that kind of stuff. So I like, I wasn't really sure. And you kind of headcanon some of this stuff to to get into it. Um, one of the things that um, I, I want to stress that I really like about the pacing of the show is that they are giving themselves enough room for character development, not only within an episode, but like over the course of the season. So you've got yeah. eight episodes in season one. They're 60 to 70 minutes long, as far as I can tell, uh, just looking ahead with, like I, t I try not to dig too far ahead because I don't want to spoil anything for myself either. Um, and that to me, I've noticed that 
I've gone, man, this has gone on a long time. And I pause it and I realize, oh, sweet. There's still 30 minutes left. This is great. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and it's not 10 minutes of credits, you know, like it's, you've got 30 minutes of like actual runtime, you know, watching the show. And, uh, it's fabulous because the, uh, they have enough time for the story to be told. They're not cr- trying to cram it down into a specific length, which would hurt the show so much, uh, and just wouldn't fit the mood of middle earth. You know, like, I feel like the Peter Jackson films had such a pace to them. And I mean, not a quick one. I mean, there's lots of scenes of just running, you know, and just Mm -hmm. the time it takes to get across the earth when you're on foot. And I feel like that's, that's a similar thing that they're trying to do with the show. Like the pacing is, is really good in that way. And when you compare that to the 11 hours of the extended version of Lord of the Rings, and you're getting between eight and 11 hours of Rings of Power in season one. It's awesome to have these high, high value, high budget shows that can do much longer storytelling than you can in a two hour film or a series of two hour films or even extended edition films. Yeah, they they have the comfort of knowing that they have been they've sold five seasons of this show already. They don't have to worry about like, are we going to get renewed for a season two? They are committed to telling a story from beginning to end, which I think is what has thrown some people who are more modern TV watchers because they are used to the show trying to have a complete arc throughout season one and tie up all the loose ends just in case they don't get renewed. And that's a weird climate to make a TV show in. And it's very good that this team doesn't have that restriction and yeah it allows them to start a character in a place that's going to allow them to grow and change and they will not be the same by the end of the show i mean we're seeing a lot of that with galadriel first and foremost um and you know so case in point remember in fellowship of the ring in the movie there's a male elf who's in lothlorien with galadriel who you know much desires to speak with gandalf that's Celeborn. Uh, who is her husband, they get married sometime within the first couple of hundred years into the first age in Tolkien's writing. So by the time this show takes place, Galadriel should have been married for at least a thousand years. Probably 1500 minimum, actually. But Celeborn is not here. And I think in order to bridge the gap into Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, if you want people to be able to watch this through into the third age... Galadriel and Celeborn are probably now going to meet and marry each other during the span of this show, which is not going to fit with Tolkien's chronology at all, but it does two things. It allows Celeborn to be part of Galadriel's growth as a character, potentially like in uh, maybe in this season, maybe in a later season, he arrives and maybe reminds her that there are things to live for other than revenge. <laughs> um, and it also potentially gives the opportunity to sell to Tolkien fans why on earth the all-powerful Galadriel character is hanging out with this dude of all dudes. Uh, because everyone's always thought this about Celeborn, like, what has he done? <laughs> like, he he seems like a bit of a weird get for Galadriel. Um, but I think spacing the characters out like this also allows viewers who haven't read the books to internalize Celebrimbor's name before they get him confused with Celeborn because I misspeak and I mix those two up all the time so I think there's there's potential for other characters to be introduced in later seasons who can be critical to the plot but they don't have to be in season one so you don't have to remember exactly who everybody is from the first episode the show's already introduced a ton of characters but I expect there are a few more to introduce before the show is done 
And speaking of, uh, I really enjoy some of the characters that they've introduced. Uh, I mean, I, the acting in the show across the board is just straight up great. I, I, there's not, oh, yeah. there's not, no one's really phoning it in. Um, but I really enjoy uh, Markella Cavanaugh as Eleanor Brandyfoot or Nori. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And real, like Mary and Pippin vibes, like all over the place between her and, is it Pepper? And Poppy. Her, Poppy. Poppy. Poppy is her, is her friend. Uh, and I like I love their exchanges. It's um, it's the kind of thing where like you see that line in a, in a in a Peter Jackson film about like let's go on an adventure. Like who would want to do that? You know, like it just mm-hmm. it's this weird kind of like juxtaposition of like excitement versus like excitement is bad. I'd much prefer to be boring. That's way more. You know, it has that kind of like um, if you pardon the stereotype, like the old English kind of like you know, just just stay home and be content. There's no need yeah. to cause a fuss. Like that the kind stiff of stuff. upper lip kind of yeah. mentality. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I like I like that about her a lot. And I mean, and Markella Cavanaugh is knocking it out of the park because she's got this like wide eyed dreamer, thinking outside the box character, but doesn't make it feel modern. Like she's got. It's yeah. a sense of wonder, you know, it's that it's the big old saucer eyes. The world is ginormous because she's a teeny tiny race as well. Like the, they're, they're tiny people. Uh, and, and I just, I like that kind of, um, spark that she's brought to, to Nori. And, uh, I have, I mean, it's a different vibe altogether, but I mean, Morth- Morpheth Clark, uh, as Gladriel, she continues to be excellent. I talked uh, about her acting in, in last week's episode, but uh, also just seeing all three episodes of, of um, Rings of Power now. She's such a strong character. And I find that even more so now that she's doing that banter with, is it Elendil? That's... Uh, Halbrand is the, the, no, no, the other human guy that she meets on the raft, but no, Elendil the, is the, the, the one she meets in Numenor. Yeah, yeah, the guy that the rescues the guy that um, we see in silhouette at the end of episode two on the yes. ship. Yes, yeah, that's yeah, Elendil. Elendil. So I, I I like him. He's obviously intelligent. They're having a bit of a banter back and forth. Uh, like she escapes immediately after she's you know a forced guest of of Numenor, uh, and then he's tracking her down, and they have this exchange. Like I could kill you. I could turn you in. There's just that that level of dialogue there. It's starting to broaden a little bit. She's still strong, but she's she's got more breadth to her now. Um, but again, like to what we were saying about, um, poignant dialogue, I find that she says just as much as an actor when she's not speaking as -hmm. when she does. And, and I think that that's, it speaks to the importance of the character. Like she's just as, it's just as important for her to be standing there and observing this blowhard human for an hour or in our, in our view, a couple of minutes of this long monologue before she says something. And what she mm-hmm. says usually shuts them down completely. And I, yeah. and I find that just like, yes, like I just, cause you're on her side, right? Like, um, she's definitely a point of view character. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so like, I'm really enjoying that. I, I have to say like Robert Arameo as Elrond acting fantastic. He's definitely capturing like the confidence perhaps to a fault that Elrond has and that I associate with Elrond. Mm-hmm. Um, I do find it very strange though, and this is a me problem that, uh, and a nitpick that it's hard to remember that he's Elrond because Arameo doesn't look a thing like Hugo Weaving, uh-huh. not even close. Right. And he's got short hair. Uh, and on the other hand, I can look at Clark and Blanchett and completely, yeah, like connect oh, the dots sure. in my head. And now yeah. some of it has to do with like long blonde hair. They're both fair. They're both pretty. Like just, I get it. 
even though to look at them, like Blanchett and Clark don't look really that much alike. Uh, yeah. But there's such a huge, like, it's like a jaw structure, completely different head shape, you know, all that kind of stuff with with the two uh, actors that have played Elrond over the, the two properties. And and I, so I do find I have to remember, like, right, Elrond, right, Lord Elrond, who's not a lord mm-hmm. yet, but like that kind of stuff, I have a hard time, hard time with. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how his experiences change him and whether he seems more like Hugo Weaving to us by the end of this show. Um, I think his hair color is the other thing that's giving people a bit of a sticking point. True. Because his hair is a lot lighter. If it's not quite blonde, then it's at least a very light brown. Whereas Hugo Weaving was very dark haired and very stern feeling. And we're not seeing Elrond at the point where he has yet become stern. Maybe his hair color, maybe his wardrobe and stuff changes a little bit over the course of the show. And maybe they're making an effort with makeup and stuff to blend him into Hugo Weaving. I also don't feel like the show has to do that. I no. think uh, Robert Aramayo is pretty good as Elrond and I think he's the right actor for the job and that's really all you need to to do but I can see your point like Galadriel they wanted Galadriel to look a certain way in the movie so they got Kate Blanchett and this show got more for the Clark for the job and they happened to be very like <laughs> very iconically similar to Galadriel at least in their own imaginations and I've seen this joke online forgive me for sharing it with you if you can't unsee it but it's uh, elves with short hair just look like Vulcans. Stop it. <laughs> I just like, yep. It's you can true. see the ears. Yeah, and, like, yeah, well, not it, just, it, it, it feels really. St- no, you can still see the ears when they have long hair, too, if it's parted around them. But I just, there's just yeah, something yeah. about, and again, it's it's the how many times have you watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson and seen elves with long hair? They all have long hair. Like, it's just, it, and it's straight. There's no curly hair. It's, there's blonde and dark, but it's, it's all very poker straight. Uh, and I and I think that that's just an interesting kind of like bit of baggage that people bring into. And it's not just the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's all of the fan art and all of the times that elves have been portrayed in media across all kinds of different properties. And they usually have long hair, you know, yeah, that, that yeah. kind of thing, even if it's just concept art. It's just it's you, you see that all the time. There's a, there's a community knowledge thing going on at that point where it's like elves have long hair. This is known. Um, the the one elf who does have long hair, the one elf who seems like he looks elven from the get go, is the High King Gilgalad. Um, aside from Galadriel, obviously, and they sort of feel like they're very opposite each other. Like Gilgalad is very much acting the king at this point, and the stuff he's doing feels weirdly political in a sense that I think people who've come in from watching stuff like Game of Thrones and want more of the political drama side of things, you get the sense that he's almost, he knows that there is this shadow rising, but he's in denial about it. He's sweeping it under the rug. Or some people who are less familiar with the story might even think that he's somehow helping evil to rise again. But it feels like he's getting Galadriel out of the picture by sending her to Valinor. Um... And there's, yeah, there's some really weird stuff with the imagery of Valinor in the show as well, like them returning through this curtain of light without really any of the the landscape that we saw in the prologue. It sort of feels like, you know, it's Logan's run. They've been selected for the carousel and they're actually going to be killed or whatever. It's like, it feels like they've been sent off to an early retirement and Galadriel is not ready to retire at this point, but it's almost been forced upon her by Gil-galad. And so... I think a lot of people are kind of surprised to see Gilgalad depicted that way. When we find out about him through Lord of the Rings, there are songs about him, uh, and that's really where we first hear about him. He's like a hero of legend. So it kind of seems odd at first that he's basically 
in denial about Sauron's existence, but that's another thing that we're going to see that character grow and change and maybe his hubris comes back to bite him, kind of echoes of the Jedi Council a little bit, which might not be everyone's favourite comparison, but... Um, if if this is a prequel, then they can go there, right? They can kind of show that yes, this this guy's uh, decision making process is not necessarily in the best interest of the future of this world. I I definitely got that, like, and I and I felt that it was something to try and illustrate how long the elves have been in Middle Earth, how tired they are of cleaning up the mess, and for me, it was that political division between the humans that sided with Morgoth and the humans that did not. I feel like the humans that sided with Morgoth were the more numerous of the people. And so there's this stereotype of just like, look, if this hint of Sauron that we can't prove it's only your gut feeling is still around, that's their problem. Like they kind of yeah. brought it on themselves. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. <laughs> we've given enough elf blood uh, for these people. We've given the humans enough. I think it's time that they earn their own sort of keep. Like it definitely felt like, you know, the old school... Uh, dad kicking son out of the nest, you know, to try and fend for yourself sort of deal. Yeah, um, yeah. But I definitely got the political angle as well. I find it difficult as well to figure out because I've heard in different places that um, he's actually Galadriel's nephew, but just bec in the show, they've cast casted an actor that is older than Morpeth Clark <laughs> to, play, to play him. And so it's kind of hard to figure out what you know what they're trying to like how they're trying to line things up so and i think it is i think it's elrond who's meant to be galadriel's nephew i actually don't know oh, about do i have Gilgalad. that backwards I'm, i could be i'm, I could I'm be not very sure wrong. They, I, yeah. I have also consumed an awful lot of like secondary media outside of the show now that i like once i consumed the first three episodes i thought okay i'm in i know i'm watching this and i'm okay with speculation and with people that are more knowledgeable in tolkien's universe kind of like speaking to me about this so one i can maybe even enjoy it a little bit more um, but, and, and because I've consumed so much of it, I just, I'm certainly, I'm mincing facts in my brain. I'm cause it's mm. all new to me in the last, last little while. It has made me want to read the Silmarillion though. Like I, I feel uh. like that's, that's something that I hear, I hear people poo poo it. Like I hear people say, look, look, it's not what you think. It's more like reading an encyclopedia. However, it's like reading the Bible. It's like the Bible. Yeah. kind of style of delivery of like and then thus it was that so and so begat this person and then the war happened you know and right. it, it's it's interesting I'll grant you because I have read it sort of recently and I'm now getting on to the stuff that concerns Numenor which I think I'm finding more interesting now that I've seen this show so maybe with the context of this show you might find the Silmarillion even a bit more accessible and and because I read the Chronicles of World of Warcraft which was uh currently three books i hope they continue but they might not uh and that did, it did the same thing it was like the the original gods and the celestials and how they ended up creating these titans and how the titans would fight and how the fight between this plant titan and this mountain titan created this continent with this jungle on it and like that kind of stuff and i thought mm -hmm. that's really cool because as a warcraft player i used to run through that jungle like i fought in yeah. that jungle and so it's kind of cool to know where it all came from um, and like, and in that jungle, there's some like dark energy that's corrupting the animals and you're trying to figure out what's going on. And it's all a giant mystery to you, the player. But when you read this chronicle, you're like, oh, that's because the jungle is built on top of this Titan that was, um, killed. But when it died, it's like, you know, magical essence seeped out into the world and started making like really weird plants and really weird monsters. And that's not that they just, it's, it's a neat way that they, they illustrate to you that 
these things did not just evolve. Like if you look at a bunch of different wolves, then you can see how that might evolve. But we are looking at a plant that walks around and tries to kill you. You're like, where the hell did that come from? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. this explains like, oh, well, that's a magical. Like when, when, you, when you mix DNA and magic, you get this stuff. And when it's just DNA, you get like, you know, orcs and, and humans and dwarves and gnomes and things. But I, I thought it was an interesting kind of way. And that's what makes me think that reading the Silmarillion would be interesting. And again, knowing, you know, having the context of the show, I feel like I'll probably wait until the, sh- like the first season is over um, before I, I get into it. Not to mention, I'm also reading some other stuff right now, but um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there any, like any actor or any character in particular that's like, that's standing out to you in the show? I really want to talk about Daniel Wayman as the stranger. Because, mm-hmm. obviously, like, that's tied up with the whole Harfoot thing, and the Harfoots are great. Like, I feel like we've skipped over them in this conversation so far, but bit, they yeah. are... They're so cool, because hobbits aren't really mentioned in any of Tolkien's writing about the First and Second Age. That's largely concerned with the elves, and then with the men of Numenor. Um, but we know from the Lord of the Rings appendices and some some of the concerning hobbits, I think the kind of prologue to Fellowship of the Ring says that there are these proto-ancestors of hobbits who are the Harfoots, the Fallowhides, and the Stores, and they don't settle in the Shire until around a thousand years into the Third Age. And throughout the Ho- uh, the Lord of the Rings, we're told that hobbits aren't really, they don't appear in records of an earlier age. And so a lot of people were confused that they put hobbit-like characters into this show but the current way of life that we see with the harfoots kind of perfectly explains why they aren't in any of the histories because they're nomadic they migrate they don't leave behind any of these sizable settlements that we know of them from the shire and they take great pains not to be observed um which makes for really cute set pieces in the show where they all kind of like emerge out of their camouflage bunkers and tents Mm -hmm. and stuff And you start to see the early imagery of the Shire creeping in there. There's a large wheel leaning against a shelter that's clearly meant to emulate a hobbit hole door that you later discover are the wheels of these wagons that they use when they're moving on. Um, And we kind of get a bit of hobbitry. We get the, the early kind of origins of young hobbits getting into mischief and scrumping for fruit and that kind of stuff. And then discovering wizards. Uh, So I think we need to talk about the stranger because people will, you know, be mad at us if we don't at least theory craft a little bit here. Um, I think there are two plausible theories on The Stranger that the show is trying to set up, and it could go in any number of ways. They could have surprises for us, and all of these could be red herrings. But I think we have two choices, and he's either Sauron or Gandalf. Uh, I don't know how you fall into this debate. Have you had any thoughts on who you think The Stranger might be? So at first, I thought it was Sauron, Mm -hmm. but then I remembered some of the depictions who I thought was supposed to be Sauron from the trailers. I think it's not the same actor. Uh, yeah. And then, so I thought, all right, well, I'm just going to watch it. I mean, of course there's also the moment when Nori touches him and you see like fire and flame and like, she, she's quite scared. Um, yeah. and I thought, well, okay, well that's interesting. But then, uh, and I think they're doing this on purpose. There's a couple of other moments where he uses some sort of language that I, I don't get it. it reminded me of like black speech but it wasn't quite that um but there's a moment in uh the fellowship of the ring when gandalf says you know what do you take me for a conjurer of cheap tricks and he kind of rises up and things go dark in, mm-hmm. yeah. in in bilbo's um in bag end and it reminded me of something that he said very 
briefly to Nori when the sky kind of got dark and he looked like he was getting bigger and all that kind of stuff. So that reminded me of Gandalf. Then also whispering to the fireflies is very reminiscent of whispering to the moth on top of the, mm -hmm. the Orthanc and the two towers. So that to me thought, okay, Gandalf. And when Gandalf comes back in, in the two towers as Gandalf the White, he has kind of like a memory loss. Like there's sort of like a, he kind of yes. has this moment where he yeah. remembers who he is. So you think like through this recreation after fighting the Balrog at the end of Fellowship or at the beginning of Two Towers, depending on when that sequence happens, um, you you get the fact that there's a bit of rebirth happening and that there's a complete like, they don't necessarily remember what happened right away. Uh, and I get that impression of like, you know, coming to earth in a meteor is something I've never seen in Lord of the Rings. Like that's sci-fi territory, you know, as far as most of my <laughs> it, film It, it was kind experience. of like the, uh, the Autobots arriving at the in the first Transformers <laughs> movie. It's what I thought of immediately. And then I was like, nope, sorry, wrong franchise. Move well, on. here's my other theory because I think, you know, it makes me think Gandalf, but I'm also aware, and this is, I don't know if this is just news to me now, but I do know that there's more than one wizard you know in there are five yeah exactly yeah. right so it's like is it is it gandalf specifically or are we seeing just a different wizard in the uh the the realm of the lord of the rings and and tolkien's universe and maybe we'll end up meeting someone that is supposed to be gandalf later in the series like i, I don't know um See, the other the other thing that i did find out recently from a youtube video so like don't quote me if it's off but balrogs are apparently shapeshifters Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. wreathed in flame and all that stuff you think okay well he appears good right now but like maybe uh, like and if you're going to deliver a balrog to the to the earth a flaming meteor seems like a pretty good way to do it <laughs> right so there's it a does. couple of different ideas that i have that that could make sense but i i agree that i think the show is is trying to point you towards if not gandalf then at least wizard right yeah, it's it's interesting because, as I said, there are five wizards. Gandalf, Radagast, and Saruman are the ones that we'll be familiar with from the movies. Radagast appears mostly in The Hobbit. Um, but there are two others whose names are Palondo and something else, and they are the Blue Wizards. And their job uh, from Tolkien's later writings is basically to go to the Southlands, even further south than Mordor, and try to convince the people there not to ally themselves with evil. And there's, you know, a, a little bit has been written about them, but not very much, which means if it if it is one of the blue wizards, then it's open season for what they do with that character, which would be cool. And considering that the character is not depicted in any other form, it's not like he's Gandalf and then he has to live up to Ian McKellen's performance from the Peter Jackson trilogies. Right. Which would be a tough nut to crack, I think, for Daniel Wayman. Yeah. Um, but if he if he is one of the wizards, again, it shows their willingness to break with the chronology as Tolkien wrote it out, which, you know, I think for the Second Age, it's kind of fair game because they're trying to depict the events of the Second Age. But the wizards don't really arrive until about a thousand years into the Third Age because they are sent from Valinor almost as a response to the fact that Sauron is rising in power again. Like, Saruman, his whole deal is researching what Sauron has done with the rings and getting into, like, ring lore so he can understand how to fight Sauron. And then he gets corrupted by that and starts to think, okay, well, you know, seems like Sauron is undefeatable. Maybe we should try and oppose him in, in the books, but, you know, with his own army. And then in the movies, it's more like, well, it, we're doomed. Let's just join forces with evil. It would be the right thing to do. Um, if the stranger is 
Gandalf, he's arriving way earlier than we would expect. And he is depicted in the books as having arrived at the Grey Havens, implying that he came over from Valinor by boat, and then he's given one of the Elven Rings of Power right then when he arrives. So deviating from this would be a kind of a weird move from uh, for a show that seems to have a pretty healthy respect for the source material, and we don't know if they're going to be dabbling in the events of the Third Age and kind of bringing stuff into their show to tie up some of the loose ends. But a point in favour of him being Gandalf is that he makes contact with the Harfoots first. And of course, we know Gandalf has a strong bond with and affection for hobbits. So this could be an interesting origin for that sentiment. Um, and yes, I agree that the visual language of the scenes that he's in kind of evokes the Gandalf from Fellowship of the Ring. Um, his kind of wordless magical yelling scene is very similar to him scolding Bilbo in Bag End. And by the end of episode three, he seems to be a largely benevolent force, which is what makes me think the Balrog theory is kind of weird, because you can't imagine a Balrog's origin story being hanging out with some halflings and calling one of them friend. Uh, but you don't know. We're not entirely certain. And I think he is potentially the most interesting thing they could do with him from the perspective of the characters we know about is that he could be Sauron. And I think the way it's worked is that Sauron, after he's been pursued by elves and is regrouping and is trying to, you know, build an empire for himself, is playing a gambit, right? He's a strategist. He's kind of playing the long game here. And I think what's happened is that he has split his physical body away from his spiritual essence. So the stranger is like part of him, but he lacks his mind or soul uh, or, you know, if I had to guess, it's probably, like, the majority of his evil side is in the sword that Theo has. But that's effectively what happens when he forges the ring. He pours his malice and evil and will to dominate all life, as we hear from Galadriel in the prologue to uh, Fellowship of the Ring. He puts all of that essence into the ring, and that's why he is weaker without it. And so this could be the genesis of that idea. They could maybe say... Sauron tried to split himself up, almost like not to invoke the, you know, the the J.K. Rowling franchise, but like almost like Horcruxes from Harry Potter, where mm. Voldemort has split himself mm -hmm. up into several uh, parts. But um, we we know that Sauron is a deceiver, and he eventually is going to trick the elves, dwarves, and humans into adopting their rings of power. And he's not going to convince anybody to do that wearing a spiky suit of armor. So I'm thinking that he has to have some kind of human avatar. And from the books, we know that he, he ends up like communicating to people as more of like a humanoid figure. Um, there's a couple of other coincidental imagery points that I would touch on, but I don't want to kind of go too much into that. Um, the other thing is I'm bringing a personal bias to this because I met Daniel Wayman at a party in 2012. Nice. <laughs> um, 10 years ago. And he was doing an American accent. Um, at the party? And, uh, yes. And he's British. Uh, and if you, if you see him in like any kind of supplemental material they've made for the show, any behind the scenes conversations with the, the, the cast, he's British. So we were in Camden in London at the launch party for a book called Angel Maker by an author called Nick Harkaway. And I knew Harkaway from Twitter, like I participated in a couple of like shared fiction projects that he was just hosting like on a hashtag on Twitter. And I'd, you know, I was doing a bit of like singer songwriter kind of dabbling at the time. And I wrote a song about Harkaway's first book, The Gone Away World. 
and and he said oh hey i'm doing a launch party for my second book do you want to come and it was weird because we were pretty young and like this was not the kind of event that i've ever been to um but we went and it was a great party nice wine good conversation with everybody and daniel wayman read the audiobook for angel maker uh and i didn't I hadn't got the audiobook, but I think I'd heard a sample of it at that point, and I was fairly certain he wasn't American. So when he started talking with an American accent, and my partner Kay was there, and they're Californian, so we were instantly suspicious of this guy. And I figured, right, he's an actor, he's probably preparing for a role, he's treating this as an exercise. But I, I kind of found it odd being confronted in such a relaxed setting with someone who is so clearly lying to us. And so I, I've seen Daniel Wayman as a deceiver ever since. And so I kind of <laughs> want him to be Sauron um, because I think, yeah, there's there's potential there. But if he is Sauron, they're laying in a lot of clues. And then I think kind of distracting you from the fact that he appears in a, a an eye filled with fire and he is like the pupil of the eye in that and then you know he draws all the fire into himself at one point and then he speaks to the fireflies and they all die like th there's a couple of musical cues that kind of lend themselves to what's going on here this feels a little bit evil and a couple of times they are hanging out with some characters and then you think they're cutting back to the orcs i think this happens in episode three where there's like a a kind of very uh kind of like choral sounding bit of soundtrack and you see characters running through the woods in slow motion wearing these masks and you think they're cutting back to the orcs but it turns out that's the half-foot ceremony for like they're moving on and their migration is about to happen and so there's a couple of interesting transitions there that make me think they're they're queuing you into like all is not entirely well with the Harfords, which obviously it isn't. You know, one of them's got a broken ankle and they might be left behind at that point. But uh, yeah, there's there's some interesting imagery going on there. I think, if nothing else, the fact that they have suspended, they've got these plates spinning with the stranger and there are so many theories about what the stranger's significance is that whatever outcome we get is one that will be satisfying to somebody, which I think is a really good balancing act to follow. And it, and it makes for good TV, you know, like having mm. a character that's just got this, like this origin story that you're not quite sure, pointing and hinting at it in different ways, overlapping characteristics of Gandalf, Balrog, Sauron, something else entirely. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Who do you think, so, I mean, and that could mean, and there's lots of misdirections too. Who do you think the figure is that we saw at the very, very tail end of episode three that the orcs are almost worshipping? See, there are various corrupted characters who are in the service of Morgoth or Sauron from the early days. Mm -hmm. You hear about, like, the mouth of Sauron, who is a character who only appears in the extended edition of the movies, but is in the books. Um, in the books, he's described as a black Numenorian, and that's not black as in skin tone, that's black as in just, like, general spirits, like he's evil. Mm -hmm. And he is a Numenorian who was corrupted into the service of Morgoth, and it's not one of, or, or Sauron, rather, at this point. And it's not one of the Ringwraiths, as far as we know, it's a completely different person but there are definitely people who align themselves with evil throughout the different ages and there is some speculation that this adar character is what he's referred to as in the show because that's the elvish for father 
could potentially be an elf who was corrupted by Morgoth, and that's what leads to the creation of orcs. Because orcs are supposed to have been derived from elves in this kind of twisted way over centuries of Morgoth's dominion, and that's potentially an elf because the elves are immortal, he could have lasted for a very long time, and that's why the orcs kind of call him father in elvish. That is one option for it. I don't think that's Sauron, I don't think unless it's the stranger i don't think we have seen sauron yet and i don't think that those kind of pale robed characters from the trailer were sauron either i think they are maybe cultists of either sauron or morgoth mm. that have survived in that area and are responsible for the you know the the turning of that area into into mordor at some point in this series but yeah there's there's a lot of characters that you sort of you, you don't know about from the books if you're a book reader and that they can still dip into here and there with very ominous kind of misdirects or or some really ominous plot lines and you brought up something that i wanted to touch on as well and specifically ask you because i know how how musical you are uh, i mean i'm really enjoying the bear mccreary score to the whole show like it's just excellent across the board it feels very howard shore uh without borrowing any themes so like how are you feeling about the the music and like knowing that you consume this kind of stuff in terms of like the makings and the behind the scenes like where are you with with the score yeah i love it i think bear mccreary is doing a fantastic job i think i know him best weirdly from the music for the um the most recent god of war game because he did the 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 the, the latest P the ps4 god of war game which has a fantastic soundtrack like the soundtrack makes that that game in so many ways like there's so many good themes there but um yeah like he's clearly drawing on howard shaw's like original work and the the score for lord of the rings is a masterpiece so he's he's got his work cut out for him but he's living up to it and in the interviews on prime videos youtube channel he talks about starting with howard shaw's instrumentation and then adding to it like adding different instruments to it to represent the different factions that we see each different group or different story and he says like the harfoots have some west african percussion mallet instruments and that you know grounds it in slightly more earthy more natural feeling you could sort of imagine the harfoots having fashioned those out of the materials that are available to them then the stranger has some more metallic stuff going on as a gamelan involved um and numenor has middle eastern and turkish instruments and that gives an exoticism to Numenor that he says is n is going to be notable by its absence in the Peter Jackson trilogy. And he said he wanted people to be able to watch through into the movies. And then it's like there's this one set of instruments that you just never hear from again. And that's part of the, the, the mystery of like what happened to Numenor. Um, so there's some really like it's clear that so much craft is being put into that stuff that I think the music of the show is in some very capable hands and it's not got the uh the themes that you can kind of whistle to yourself in the same way that the shire does uh like i can i can summon up any number of themes from the lord of the rings score because there's just so many notable musical cues there and a lot of howard shaw's musical cues are based on some very simple like it's just dum dum da da dum and that's like the the motif that carries on through all of the good characters but nothing like that has come up in Bear McCreary's score yet, but I think the music is just trying not to get in the way right now, and there will be a chance for it to shine later on. 
Um, music is very important to Tolkien's writing in general. And the last thing I want to bring up about this, because I know we're running pretty long here, is that the the intro sequence to the show, after episode one, which doesn't really have like a title sequence, we get a title sequence for episode two. And at first I kind of thought, is this it? Like, it looks cool, it's okay. And there's all of these kind of grains of sand and little pebbles kind of bouncing around on a sheet and forming different shapes. And they're doing some cool stuff with that. But then it was pointed out in one of the episodes of Rings and Realms, which is, again, is a show I'll recommend if you're looking to get a deeper experience out of this. Uh, so Corey Olsen explains that the the title sequence in episode two and, you know, later on for the rest of the show has a bunch of these resonance patterns that, you know, if you play a certain kind of musical tone through a sheet, then objects on the sheet will kind of like form up into patterns. This is a science experiment that you can do at home if you'd like to. Um, but this is kind of like, this can be a direct reference to Tolkien's creation myth in which the music is basically there from the beginning and creation, the world and all of the kind of stuff around it is sung into existence by God and the Valar. And one of the Valar rebels, and that's the one who becomes Morgoth, and he tries to introduce discord into the music, and that's that serpent of darker sand snaking its way into the picture at one point, disrupting the patterns that are being made. And then obviously at one point it gets formed into nine rings, and there's there's a lot more going on there than at first I gave it credit for. Even just seeing like, you know, trees and stuff, like it's all very well, but I think music creating patterns that way is so vital to the broader cosmology of Tolkien's universe that I think it's a really neat, subtle way of including it in the title. And that's really emblematic of the subtle ways in which they try and work the larger Tolkien themes into the rest of the show without having the rights to do something from the Silmarillion. I got the the sound part of it, like, cause I've seen that kind of stuff before. And I think at some point I did know about the singing, you know, into existence with the, the Val mm -hmm. Valinar, but, but yeah, like I, I certainly get more out of the intro sequence than just like, just the visuals. Like, I feel like it's, it's deeper as you mentioned, and I like it so far. Like, and I really appreciated the cold open too, for the first episode, like they didn't have yeah. the intro. It was just very reminiscent of, of the trilogy. This kind of throw you in there, but I agree. Like, I, I think that, the music in general kind of it it echoes what's going on but doesn't distract from it which i think is is good and i'm glad that there's not those big themes on those sweeping shots you know like when you see numenor or you see uh the elven cities like i'm glad that it's there's music happening but it's not like a specific elven theme whenever you see an elven city and yeah. i like that it kind of it keeps you guessing and it, it also doesn't like um, pigeonhole any characters because I think that would do a disservice to any kind of misleading or um, what's the word I'm looking for. If Sauron is going to trick people later as a deceiver, then having elves have a very specific theme that you always hear. And then if that doesn't play when a character that's an elf is on screen, then you're like, uh oh. Like, like it starts yeah. to tip mm -hmm. you off. Whereas if you don't have anything that's really too distinct, then it's easier to fool the audience with like that whole package. Yeah. And I think that yeah, that's going to be going to be a service. And to, to end on a high note, uh, pardon the pun, and not that we've been complaining, because I think we are both very, very much enjoying the show. 
Uh, but something that I have noticed the difference between having most recently invested many years of my life watching a Game of Thrones, as I think a lot of people have, um, there is room for fun in fantasy. And some shows get it wrong and it ends up being campy. Um, Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, you know, like Game of Thrones had some funny moments, but it's a pretty dark show. Uh, I think that things like the Harfoot adults dialogue, like the busy body, nosy neighbor interactions and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, it's yeah. just, it's, it's cartoonish, but it's not so far that it doesn't feel out of place. Again, we kind of know a little bit about hobbits and their concerns and it just, it feels like a nice kind of, uh, compliment to that. Uh, you've got Nori's mischievous curiosity and banter with her best friend, Poppy, uh, played by Megan Richards. And the, the one that kind of made me roll my eyes at first, but then remind myself of like the banter between Gimli and, uh, and, um, Legolas, uh, and also, um, like some of the, 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 the quippier moments between, uh, Arwen and Aragorn as well is the bro fight between Prince Durin and Elrond for missing <laughs> yeah, his uh-huh. wedding and the birth of his children. Like, yeah, you forget with all these high fantasy characters that the hobbits like to drink beer and dwarves just kind of are stubborn and petty, you know, and, yeah. and having Prince Durin be legit angry. Like I thought the whole rock smashing thing was just a front. Like, I thought it was just kind of like, all right, Mr. I live forever and never change. You've come to visit me. I'm just going to make you earn whatever time. I thought immediately after that, there was going to be like this embrace or this welcoming or just like, yeah, yeah. you know, and then he not... still tries to kick him out. Yeah. And yeah, like I thought, I thought that that was a, f- a front. I didn't realize he really meant it, that he was uh-huh. legit angry. Uh, oh, yeah. And so the elevator, I mean, elevator, the, the platform conversation that they had when he's like apologizing. And then you see like the regret in Elrond about like, oh, crap, right. Okay. So you've had an entire lifetime while I was like writing a book, <laughs> you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. it's just that kind of stuff. And I, and I, I do have to remind myself that it's, it's the Tolkien universe where there is a lot of fun and whimsy. And I feel like one of the things to go right back to what you said about the hobbits, uh, trilogy not living up to your expectations there's some stuff with the goblin king in the that trilogy i really didn't like it Mm -hmm. it really felt cartoonish and out of place compared to the humor we're getting in this show which is more character driven and and has emotional repercussions uh, it, it ends up being like, if you think he's being silly, it's fine because his wife says you're being silly, like a couple of scenes later, which I think was hilarious. Like I, I, I like that I, they kind of called them, the, they called themselves out on it just, just soon enough that you forgive them for a very strange exchange, you know? I need more of Durin and Disa in the next episode, mm-hmm. which yeah. is only a couple of days away. So I'm excited right. for that. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I want more of Elrond and Durin. I need, I need to find out what's happening with Bronwyn and Theo because we last saw them in episode two, leaving with all of the Southlanders. There's, there's a lot to look forward to. And you're right. I think it's great that they are, they are having moments of fun, especially with how grim some of it can be, considering that the show has. Galadriel piling high the helmets of elves that have been killed in this war with Morgoth. 
and then they can still have a lovely dinner table scene between two dwarves who clearly love each other so much and they're not afraid to show that on screen in the same show it's got a lot of range and that doesn't translate to me as inconsistency it's diversity and it's just so so many ways of showing everything that's going on in this world i think it's it's great i think they're doing a really good job with this show and i think as i said at the top it's still gonna have to do something outstanding to like measure up to the legacy of the lord of the rings movies for me but i'm i'm really enjoying seeing where it's going the telltale for me is that i am champing at the bit to watch the next one when this one is over oh yeah like i just Mm -hmm. when it's over it there's a pang of sadness that i definitely had in the early days of game of thrones when i was just like oh that i need to know what happens next (laughs) like i'm trying Mm -hmm. to i'm trying to connect the dots here i need more dots amazon (laughs) give me more dots so uh so yeah i i think they've certainly got their hooks in me for at least the first season like i'm 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 hoping for good things because uh we need more stuff like this i think uh, in our sci-fi and, and fantasy media. That brings us into the Internet Minute, which is brought to you by you, dear listener. The Citadel Cafe is 100% listener supported. If you're getting value out of the show, please consider putting a little bit of value back in. You can become a member at patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe. Joining at any level will get you an invite to the member-only Discord server and access to Barista Cut bonus audio sessions. Special thanks to our Bean Counter patrons, Cosmic and Smurf588. Thanks so much for your support on this episode. We are at 27 patrons steady on from the last time we recorded. If you'd like to be patron number 28, visit patreon.com slash the Citadel Cafe. And if you will so indulge a bit of a self plug here, last Friday was the uh, second of my now weekly Lego streams on Fridays on Twitch. And I started the big one. I started Optimus Prime, which I have talked about on this on the show before. And I have to say, Talking about how cool the Optimus Prime set looks versus now being able to say, I have built three out of the 10 bags in these 1500 pieces in this set uh, and being able to articulate how fun it is uh, to be building this transformer on so many different fronts. Like from a Lego design perspective, from a nostalgia perspective growing up with transformers and from the idea that this is designed to look like the toy that I have still have in the closet somewhere of Optimus Prime and it transforms in the same way. And I grew up playing with Transformers and now I'm building one from scratch and it's going to still do the transforming thing. So the level of reveal, the level of like, oh, that's how they're doing that when you're building this, this kit is, is remarkable. Uh, to quote the lead designer, uh, Joseph Patrick Kide, uh, who has created a really interesting, intricate, you know, experience with this, this kit. Uh, the most fun challenge, however, was getting Optimus to change between modes without disassembly. And that's the thing that I'm finding so interesting is that I'm building these things, knowing that they are, they are all going to permanently connect to one another and then change shape. And it's Lego. And I've not ever done that with Lego. So it's a wholly new experience. It was a lot of fun to share. I'll have a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. Uh, the The VOD is on Twitch as well, but the archive is going to be on Joel Duggan VODs on, on YouTube. And um, I'm having a blast with it. It's a different pace than any kind of video game streaming. Like I no load the pieces and three bags took me three hours 
close to four maybe. So there's going to be at least three weeks of Optimus Prime. Uh, I would imagine the last week I'll probably push and like if I get close to finished, I'm probably going to try to finish it that day. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, I've had an absolute blast with it so far. And that's, that's my pick this week is just the taking the time to experience the modern Lego sets and how complex they are. And a lot of times on the show, I'll be plugging a piece of Lego or a Lego set and thinking like, man, this is really pricey. And the Optimus Prime wasn't cheap. I bought it for myself as a birthday present, but immediately I know that it's been worth it. And I'm only three Mm -hmm. bags in. And that, that to me is a successful, successful set, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. Like I, I've seen some of those more technical Lego sets come together. I haven't built too many of them myself, but I still think the fact that they can make a transforming Lego set is superb. Like it's so cool. I, I grew up with sets which had a couple of different designs you could build from the same pieces, but the fact that they can keep the spirit of Transformers and have it go from one to the other is legendary. So incredible work. I'm really curious to see if they do another one, like another Transformer, like another, like, you mm-hmm. know, Soundwave or Megatron. Megatron would be kind of difficult because he turns into a gun and I can see Lego maybe not wanting to do that. <laughs> Steer away from that, perhaps. I mean, there were versions of Megatron where he turned into a tank, but they've already done the classic 80s Optimus Prime. So I feel yeah. like if they did like the 80s Soundwave or the 80s um, Starscream, because he turns into a yeah. fighter jet. A jet, yeah. The vehicle stuff would make sense for Lego, right? Because then you get twice the play out of it if that's what you're looking for. Although these, these are expensive sets to play with. They're more of they're more for like the collector and stuff like that. Which I'm weirdly saying now that I'm a Lego collector, I always thought about like, I'm only going to let myself buy Star Wars ships and that's where it's going to stop. Well, that ship has sailed, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm down this road of, of, of um, different kinds of sets. I'm still limiting myself to very specific things, but... Uh, if I ever get a house with a spare room for something like a Lego city, oh boy, <laughs> I can see the temptation. I'm I'm now imagining them doing a Transformers set that's like the Death Star, but it's Unicron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a, a planet that transforms into a robot. That's, again, a feat of engineering that I can, I can see somebody taking up that challenge, but gosh, that set's got to be like a thousand bucks or something if they did it, you know? Oh yeah, that's and that's um, the ATAT Walker level. Like that's yeah. my rent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where like I, I I I want to, but I just won't let myself. Like that's just crazy, crazy expensive mm-hmm. uh, for that kind of thing. Well, that's my pick this week. What's what's yours? I got two quick ones for you. Uh, I've been playing a game called Framed at Framed.wtf. You can just plug it into your browser or your phone. It's basically Wordle, but for movies. You get shown a frame of a movie uh, chosen from a shot deck, which is a site that kind of catalogs a bunch of shots from like 2,000 or so movies. And you have to, like Wordle, guess what movie it is. And if you guess wrong, then you get shown a second frame. And it basically gets more and more obvious as you go into the, the thing. So there's oh. been a few really fun ones that I kind of went, is this what I think it is? And got it right first time. And there are some that have been really interesting, like deductive exercises that where they're movies that I haven't seen, but I kind of think, hmm, there's a bit of imagery here or like this, the the cinematography looks a certain way and I go through a couple of guesses until we figure it out. There are some that I've just never heard of, um, but then it's, it's a really fun little game if you've been into the Wordle kind of style format of things and you just want something to do for five minutes of an afternoon. Uh, the other thing I will recommend quickly is Dracula Daily, which is a Substack blog where you basically sign up to a mailing list and you get 
the classic novel Dracula by Bram Stoker emailed to you in real time as it happens because it is an epistolary novel so all of the novel takes place in the form of like letters and newspaper clippings and diary entries and stuff like that and it's all dated so effectively every day or so you get sent an email of what's happened in Dracula on that specific day of the year. And so we're in September, stuff is kicking off in Whitby, people, you know, they're, they're currently smearing garlic on all of the furniture, it's a great time. So Dracula Daily, uh, we'll link that in the show notes because I think the link is a little bit more complicated than your average, but it's a, uh, a Substack website that's a very good pick. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Citadel Cafe. You can get more information about the show and links to some of the things that Johnny and I talked about at thecitadelcafe.com. Music for the show is composed by Kevin McLeod, and you can email us at thecitadelcafe at gmail.com or follow the show by name on Twitter. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app. Word of mouth, however, is the easiest way to support the show. Just tell friends about The Citadel Cafe and where they can go to listen to it. My name is Joel Duggan. You can find everything that I am doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio at joelduggan.com. Listen to my other podcast all about Minecraft with Pixel Riffs with Johnny uh, at thespawnchunks.com. We just put out a new episode on Monday. And of course, follow me on Twitch, Joel Duggan across social media. I'm really easy to find. Uh, coming up this Friday, more Optimus Prime. It's going to be a lot of fun. Johnny, I mean, obviously we do the Spawn Chunks together and this has been a real treat. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk about something that's not Minecraft because we share so many common interests, <laughs> but our other show just focuses us down on these blocks that we talk about every week. But what else are you up to? Like what, where can people find you uh, in other projects online? Well, all of the Minecraft stuff that I do is pretty much online under the name of Pixorifs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixorifs, as I typically say at the end of the Spawn Chunks. You know, I do season two of the Minecraft Survival Guide and Empires SMP with a bunch of other fantastic Minecraft content creators. I stream three days a week, usually on Twitch. Every other Sunday is the du Dungeons & Dragons campaign that I mentioned at the top of the show, so would love if you folks could check that out. I, I voice the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find just by searching for it on YouTube, because... The URL is a custom one that we set up for something else and then couldn't change. Um, I'm at Pixelriffs on Twitter and Instagram. That's where you can usually find me posting pictures of foxes. And I'll probably tweet occasionally about Rings of Power as we go. But we'd love to come back on the show to talk about this once we've seen maybe a few more episodes or reach the end of Season 1. Because I can see, depending on where Season 1 ends up, this could be a really interesting show to discuss in retrospect. A Season 1 finale sounds like a fantastic idea. I agree. Let's do it. You've been listening to the Citadel Cafe, where we are fast, easy, and cheap, but you can only pick two. Not three, not seven, not nine.